This is Jerry Files, speaking to you by tape recording from the Antioch College campus in Yellow Springs, Ohio. National attention has It was 1953, the summer, and one of the most remarkable achievements in the history of Shakespeare in America was going on about 70 miles north of Cincinnati. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. The summer before, in 1952, 36-year-old Arthur Lithgow, an Antioch associate professor of English, had decided to try something audacious. He and a troupe of actors he'd gathered would perform every single one of Shakespeare's plays in rep over the course of three summers. This 1953 summer festival represents the first occasion in modern times when Shakespeare's seven Greek and Roman plays have been presented in repertory. In fact, four of them, Trollus and Cressida, Pericles, Timon of Athens, and Titus Andronicus, have never before been produced professionally in this country. Smoke and lukewarm water is your perfection. This is Timon's last, who stuck and spangled you with flatteries, now washes it off and sprinkles in your faces. The festival, which Lithgow co-created with another young Antioch professor, Meredith Dallas, worked with Antioch students, local amateurs, and young professionals who came in on the train from New York, including Nancy Marchand, Earl Hyman, Lawrence Luckinbill, Ellis Rabb, and Kelton Garwood. Within my tent tonight, his bones shall lie, most like a soldier, ordered honorably. So, call the field to rest, and let's away to pop the glories of this happy day. Sixty years on from those first performances, we've gathered together the children of the festival's founders to talk about their father's work and its legacy. Meredith Dallas's son, Tony Dallas, an Ohio theater director, and two of Arthur Lithgow's children. Robin Lithgow, recently retired as the coordinator for K-12 arts programs in the Los Angeles public schools, and her younger brother, the Emmy, Grammy, and Tony Award-winning actor, John Lithgow, who, at the time we're recording this, had just finished a run of a one-man show largely about his father called Stories by Heart on Broadway. We call this podcast, I Live to Speak My Father's Words. John, Robin, and Tony are interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Robin, I know that some of your earliest memories of this time are from when you were only about four years old. So I'd love if you could start us off by telling us what you remember from that time, and especially that time that you went to the refrigerator to get a snack and what you saw. Oh, okay. I think it was the summer I turned four. And I opened the refrigerator, and my dad's head was lying in a big bed of lettuce. (laughs) (laughs) And it was covered with blood, and he had this horrifying expression on his face, and um, 
I was just frozen. And my mother ran over and said, oh, it, it's just a prop, honey. It's, it's a prop. <laughs> I didn't know what a prop was. <laughs> so, so what, this was from well, Macbeth? Well, it was Macbeth. He was uh-huh. playing Macbeth, and it was the head that Macduff brings on stage at the end to prove that he has, in fact... Terrorized. Killed, killed <laughs> Traumatized his daughter. <laughs> it must have been an awfully good prop that had fooled you. Yeah, well, the reason it was in the refrigerator, they used to make it. I'm not sure what they used. It was Maybe a latex, a latex. Kind of rubbery thing. Yeah, I was it, picturing Jello. <laughs> <laughs> Jello parfait. Well, that was just for, that was for Thanksgiving. Youth <laughs> <laughs> theater family. <laughs> it was some kind of latex that would get would melt in the heat. So. Oh, that is just so wonderful, Tony. I I don't want to yeah. leave you out. I, you're the baby of this podcast, so I I don't I think your first memories are of are of Antioch. Um, but as Mike just said. In his introduction, one of the groundbreaking aspects about this festival is how they mounted these plays. And I know your father, as a director, must have talked to you about this. So it was in repertory, and you had actors playing multiple roles in multiple plays, but also yeah. perhaps multiple roles sometimes in the same play. And they, I understand they performed seven plays in nine weeks. Well, the first year they did eight. Eight. Yeah. Eight in, in nine yeah. weeks. That is just backbreaking. What did your father tell you about how the how the preparation and the rehearsals worked? Well, they opened the first show, and then the second week they opened the second show. Halfway through the second week, they were running the two shows in repertory. And then the third week, they opened the third show. Halfway through the third week, they were running three shows in repertory. They must have had to block just in a whole play in one rehearsal, right? Uh, uh, essentially, I think that's just, uh, John. You might know better than me or Robin, but I, I essentially they were very good at blocking the whole thing out and could essentially, I believe, sort of block a, a play in one day. Well, all the plays were done on a unit stage, very symmetrical, with two staircases going up to a kind of high platform that could serve as a balcony or a, a throne room or whatever so that there were never any set changes. It was always on an empty stage. So therefore, they could play seven plays in repertory because there were no set pieces. Sometimes a table might be brought on. It was all about the words, and they left it to the audience's imagination, and the audience themselves eventually participated into the kind of house style in which they performed the plays. And and this is a long English tradition in terms of repertoire. Oh, it is right? putting, exactly. Yeah. Putting on seven plays in five weeks, I think. Is yeah, the and tradition. and the Globe Theater was an empty stage. Right, and Tony, I know your father told you some story about actors getting confused about what play they were performing, and Titus Andronicus was coming up next. It wasn't the play they were doing. Well, what happened there? No, it wasn't. So much, it wasn't. Uh, it was a scene in Titus Andronicus. So there's a big vat of blood inside the main building. There's a corridor, a hallway, but. My father saw a couple of actors rushing towards the vat of blood, about to sort of submerge themselves in it, and he said, "No, no, no! We've already done that scene." Oh. <laughs> but it was <laughs> that would have been very confusing if they came out blood soaked. And... Well, uh, let's back up just for a moment, and I'm I'm curious, Robin. I'm going to treat you as our historian. Okay. I understand all of you I was are the historians, oldest. but <laughs> that's right. As the oldest, what was the original idea for the Antioch? festival? Well, the way Dad is, as, as I recall, he thought an audience willing to sit through 25 hours of Shakespearean history should have that opportunity. So um, he did it. Right. Just the history play. It's, as I recall, it was the first season was the history cycle. 
they were struggling a bit getting audiences. Olivier's movie Henry V came out around the time they came to the last plays, which were Henry V, Henry VIII, and, uh, and suddenly everything exploded. And that was the first season. The second season, I think, was the Greco-Roman plays. Mm-hmm. But by that time, they were well on the way, their way to being sort of institutionalized. They began to word spread. They broke even the first year, which never happens anymore. But it no, is, but no. because exactly. things just exploded in those in the last month of the of the season when all of the plays were in repertory. Right, and and you know we've established what this repertory style is, but I I think I saw somewhere so they'd rehearse the plays for five days each, and and I guess it was in your memoir, John, that you wrote that before you had ever heard a recording of the plays, you wondered what did that do to the quality. Yeah, well, I I I don't know. I I grew up, became an adult, became an actor, and a rather pretentious actor at that. Uh, having gone to England and studied at, at a drama school in London, I began to doubt that these were any good. You know, how good could they possibly be? And then one of the actors, Kelton Garwood, he had passed away, but his son was a prop master in the movie industry, and he sent me a cassette recording of Merry Wives of Windsor with my dad playing Dr. Caius. And we have that recording. Oh, my God. And I'd love to play it. Play Nick, it because... Nick is our engineer. Nick, can we roll that? Our dad in, in his crazy French accent. <laughs> it was and, kind of hard to hear, but, but yeah, that was a good thing. But the most French vivid accent. sound there is the f- sound of the audience mm. roaring with laughter. And they are so into yeah. it. Such high energy. And I realized these guys were good. They were very, very good. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I didn't have a very critical eye, but I do now. And these were really good shows. And, and the audiences just kept coming and coming and coming, and you and, still meet and people. What you, and and yeah. what you hear there is the incredible high energy. Because remember, yes. this was there was no amplification. Outdoors, a they unit did it set, all. and no yeah. amplification. So you had to yell your lines, and you had to yell them at lightning speed and with perfect diction. You don't see that much these days. It's quite extraordinary. Well, it is funny because listening to that tape, it almost has the speed of a radio play from that era or of a of a TV sitcom. It reminds me of the sitcoms I grew up on. Absolutely Just... breathless. In fact, right. there's the, the, the famous story, which is not apocryphal, that when Dad was rehearsing Taming of the Shrew, he set a kitchen timer on the set. 
for a given scene, and the actors were told they had to be done by the time that timer went off. And you or can get hear, off the stage. Or yeah. get off the stage. And you can hear it. I mean, they go at breakneck speed, including my dad as Petruccio. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you, and maybe, Robin, I'll ask you, is that the dad that you remember? Oh, yeah. Oh, in what way? Doing goofy voices? Being that energetic? Mm. Well, on stage, he had tremendous energy. Uh, he he only as a director too. I, I only remember one time him getting mad at actors, and it was it was a, a line I've never forgotten. I thought of it so often. And what's that? He was sitting in the back, and they were. I, it was a run through, and he was being very quiet and just taking notes. And suddenly, you hear this voice and saying, "Damn it! Stop <laughs> acting and say your lines." <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That seems, that's probably the cry of every director. <laughs> God. I remember watching him uh, rehearse. It was a, a tech dress rehearsal of Romeo and Juliet. And the Romeo was coming up really short. He just was. And it was the bal- balcony it. scene. It was supposed to be a run through. And dad came down from the back of the house to just talk to Romeo and Juliet. And he began very calmly, but he spoke for about 10 minutes. And by the end of those 10 minutes, he was roaring and he was passionate. And he was just absolutely laying out this actor. I've never seen anything quite like it. Uh, I presume there was some improvement. Now, Tony, again, I don't want to. I don't want to leave you hanging here. We also have a clip of your father, and uh, let's play this. Oh, yeah. I'm not even going to introduce it because we're all going to recognize it. Uh, Nick, can can you okay. please line up our second clip? I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is often tethered with their bones. So let it be with Caesar. The noble Brutus had told you Caesar was ambitious. If it were so, to the grievous fault, grievously had Caesar answered it. Here on the leave of Brutus and the rest. For Brutus, as you know, is an honorable man. All honorable men. And I speak in Caesar's funeral. He was my friend, faithful and just to me. Yeah, Brutus says he was ambitious. He had brought many captives home to Rome, whose ransoms did the general coffers fill. Did this in Caesar seem ambitious? When did the poor have cried? Caesar had wept. Ambition should be made of sterner stuff. Yet Brutus says he was ambitious. Brutus is an honorable man. You all did see that on the Lupricol. I thrice presented him a kingly crown, which he did thrice refuse. Was this ambition? It could be said he was ambitious. Sure, he's an honorable man. Meredith Dallas, Tony's dad, is Mark Antony. Dow. Dallas. Oh, Dow. Do you remember that, Tony? Because you were pretty little. Well, I don't remember that, but I, I've heard him do. He used to do it, in, you know, when, when at high schools in different places, come in and read Shakespeare to to people. So I've, you know, I heard him do that, but it's it was very disconcerting <laughs> when I yeah. heard when Richard sent me the uh, recording. And Richard is our producer. We sent you that clip to listen to that. Yeah, that was my question. If that's the dad you remember, the actor yeah. dad you remember. Uh, yes and no. 
similar to you, uh, John Robin, the speed was one of the things that sort of uh, was one of the first things that sort of struck me. But also the sort of the rolling of the R's and all that kind of I stuff. I noticed that. Yeah, um, that's an old old yeah. school style. But yeah. you know, anytime, anytime uh, you hear Shakespeare from another era, it's I mean, if you hear Barrymore yeah. doing Hamlet, it's closer to yeah. opera than theater. Mm. Tony, it, yeah. it's it sounds like there's plenty of people in these audiences, but I gather from watching an interview with your father that the festival ran out of uh, money at this time, at the beginning of this? They ran out of money halfway through the first season. And because of the Red Scare that was going on at Antioch, and Antioch at that point was getting a, very, a lot of bad publicity uh, because of the Red Scare. But the Shakespeare Festival was starting to get enough energy and publicity that putting money into the, the season became sort of an economic thing. Oh, so it helped Antioch overcome its bad press as kind of a nest of communists. And exactly, liberal. exactly. And, and in some quarters, that was good press. Shakespeare so. conquers <laughs> McCarthy. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and, and apparently the festival was a big draw for actors too, right? New York actors would come, who would come out for the summer to the, to the festival. I saw an article from the, I think the Cincinnati Enquirer from 1953 that talked about how the festival had held extensive auditions in New York mm-hmm. and had yeah. the support of a theater yeah. in yeah. New York. If, there was a, a wonderful moment when Clarence Derwent came out to play Shylock. Clarence Derwent, he's well known for an award in New York theater for a newcomer actor, the Clarence Derwent Award. In those days, I'd, I'd never heard of Clarence Derwent, but it was like the equivalent of having George C. Scott come out. Uh, so I, I mean, uh, that's that was the status of the festival. And of course, Earl Hyman had a had a great yes. reputation had done Othello. And, and Earl Hyman, yeah, I want to talk about Earl Hyman. Earl Hyman's did Othello. Oh, just scores of times became known as yeah. the, the actor does Othello. He also played Cliff Hustable's father in the Cosby Show. That's how the rest of us. Yeah, yeah, and also Nancy Marsh. Yeah, yeah, she was a great Kate. Right, and we are. We're going to play that clip, but let's just remind everyone who who she is. She was she became known as Tony Soprano's mother. Just stole the show every time she stole the scene, every scene she was in on the Sopranos. Uh, but she was also the Catherine Graham character yes. uh, on, of Lou Grant's That's boss, right, right? Yeah. on Lou Grant, the TV show, big Emmy winner. Right. And before all of that, she was Kate in Taming of the Shrew with Robin and John's father as Petruchio. Let's roll that clip. Oh, slow-winged turtle, shall a buzzard take thee? Aye, for a turtle, as he takes a buzzard. Um, uh, oh, wasp, in faith you are too angry. I the wasp is best to wear my sting. My remedy, then, is to pluck it out. Thy the fool can find it where it lies. Who knows not where a wasp, but where his sting? In his tail. In his tongue. Whose tongue? Girls, if you talk of tales, and so farewell. What, with my tongue in your tail? Yay, come up again. <laughs> Good, Kate, I am a gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> you, if you strike again. So may you lose your arms. You are no gentleman if you strike me, and if no gentleman, why then, no arms. Oh, hello, Kate, oh, put me in thy book. What is your crest, a coxcomb? Comeless cocks, or Kate will be my hen. No cock of mine, you crow to like a craven. Yay, come, Kate. Come, you must not look so sour. It is my fashion when I see a crab. Why, he is no crab, and therefore look not sour. There is. 
There is. Then show it me. Have I a glass I would? What, you mean my face? Well, aim for such a young one. Oh, by St. George, if I'm too young for you. Oh, with it. Just with that. I cannot. Make it, you can. Sushi's getting up so. I chafe you if I carry. Let me go. No, not a whit. I find you passing gentle. You told me you were rough and coy and stubborn, and now I find a poor, a very liar. But thou art pleasant, gave some passing kid, but slow in speech. Yet speak as springtime flowers, thou kiss up. Thou kiss up, look a scant, nor bite the lips as angry wenches will. Nor hast thou pleasure to be cross and talk, but thou wilt mildly entertain as thy woes with gentle conference, soft and affable. Oh boy! <laughs> I, I, I remember everything in that scene. I mean, it's like oh, everything, like, everything. Like what? I remember watching rehearsals for that. Scene. Yeah, me too. And do you know when I was uh, when I was in high school, I was the president of the drama club, and I invited first David Hooks and then my dad to literally perform and do a Q&A with the kids. And he did the wooing scene from Taming of the Shrew, playing both Petruccio and, and Catherine. Both of them. He did that very scene. <laughs> That's hilarious. God, it was about, God, about 25 years later. But it's so interesting to hear that. First of all, it sounded like, I wish I could see it. Such oh, antics oh, on stage. So, such so funny physical. energy. So physical. Yeah. Right. I think we heard someone run into something there. Um, yeah. But, but, <laughs> It's interesting because Taming of the Shrew, it's a problematic play now. You well, actually see it actually, performed, and in this, especially in this era of hashtag Me Too. Well, well, the clip that solves the problem of performing it today, in the, um, the scene where they're traveling back to Padua, and um, she... It's the scene with Vincentio. Yes, he, Vincentio. He, he makes her play act. Yeah, he, he makes her play act. She says, that's not the sun, or that's not the moon, that's the sun. And he says, if I say it's the moon, it's the moon. Forward, I pray thee, since we have come so far. And be it sun or moon or what you please. And if you please to call it a rush candle. Henceforth, I vow, it shall be so for me. I say, it is the moon. I know it is the moon. Nay, then you lie. It is the blessed sun. Then God be blessed, it is the blessed sun. But sun it is not, when you say it is not. And the moon changes even as your mind. Sun, at that moment, she takes over. She realizes that it's really fun to be with this half-lunatic. We can play all those uh, idiots in Padua. And, and ultimately, Petruccio is a much, much more charismatic, sexy catch than Lucentio, who married Bianca. And I, that's a take that could play. It's, I, so it's, then it's, it's Tracy and Hepburn. And then it's a combative old, uh, couple. And this old man walks on stage and he says, you know, Kate, look at this lovely young woman. And she immediately goes into roll. Oh, we'll make a man mad to make a woman of him. Young budding virgin. Fair <laughs> <laughs> and fresh and sweet, whither away, or where is I abode? Happy the parents of so fair a child. Happier the man whom favorable stars have allotted thee for his lovely bedfellow. Why, how now, Kate, I hope thou art not mad. This is a man old, wrinkled, faded, withered, and our maiden, as thou sayest he is. Pardon, dear father, my mistaking eyes that have been so bedazzled with the sun. <laughs> that everything I look on... I'm going to have fun. Person. This and is I'm going to have fun, fun I'm gonna in this marriage. I'm going to be fun as an actress. Yeah. And she, that's, so when she does, I place my hands what's beneath the, your the foot. husband's foot. She says foot because to make it rhyme. Yeah. And it's her oh, totally tongue in cheek. 
Yeah. You know, it's time for you to direct this play again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Tony, maybe you know this story because yeah. we're talking about some of the famous actors who came out of the Antioch Festival. Yeah. But the, it was a real mixed bag, I right. imagine, too. And I read somewhere a story about actors setting off, I think it was two uh, Roman is, candles, right? Was, uh, yeah. Like John was saying earlier, the, the intention was only to do the history plays first. But they were so successful that they decided to do everything else after that. But uh, my father directed Henry VIII, which is the last play, and to sort of close this celebratory thing, uh, he thought uh, it would be wonderful to send off a couple of Roman candles. This is a christening scene, I guess, with with Queen Elizabeth. But uh, the first firework went off, and it went across the stage. (laughs) All of the actors at this point are assembled (laughs) on the stage. So luckily it missed the actors. And got enough altitude to go over the audience. And my father's sitting there with Nick Dewey as Queen Elizabeth in his arms, <laughs> you know, hoping that they're not going to uh, send off the second firework. They're not sure, going to kill sure someone enough, goes, next. <laughs> <laughs> well, it goes whistling across the stage and ends up in a woman's lap yeah. in the audience. <laughs> it was pretty serious, right? Bur- burned her it skirt. It was. It sort of burned <laughs> off her dress, I guess, and, you know, some serious burns. And my father sort of spent, you know, the rest of the night in the, in the college infirmary sort of trying to soothe her and hoping she wouldn't sue. <laughs> and by the way, uh, Tony mentioned Nick Dewey, who was a little boy. Uh, we, we all performed, too. Robin and I acted together in the plays. Yeah. Right. Well, you ha- you say that one of your most disappointing memories is of your of of, yeah. of she, this time, right? She and David got to play uh, the princes in Richard the uh. Third. Had lo- an entire scene with oh, you lines were way and everything. Right. I was about young. six years old, but I was not. But I was old enough to be very jealous. Oh, you must have been so. Mad. <laughs> but a few years later, Robin and I played mustard seed and moth. Mm-hmm. In Midsummer Night's Dream, we, we really stole the show. We were very good. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and you had a very famous costume designer yes. in that production, Anne Roth, Oscar-winning costume. Yeah, next time she designed wow. for me was World According to Garp. Robin, I, do you still remember your lines? Well, I re- I remember a few of them. Ready? I maybe like, and I and I <laughs> and oh, I from Moth. Oh yeah, Moth. Where, oh yes. Ready? Where shall we go? <laughs> Where shall we go? Yeah. Well, John, uh, let me ask you this. How did uh, the Antioch Festival, it, it all started with your father, but how did your father start with Shakespeare? He just grew up loving Shakespeare. He describes himself curled up in an attic room in, in, in his high school years, reading the entire folio from start to finish, all the plays. And the poems. And- and, and he'd had a tough childhood. Uh, his father died of the Spanish flu, your grandfather, yeah, in 1918. Yeah. At and, age four, when he was age four. So he was... He was kind of the man of the house. He was the oldest boy. He had two older sisters. Yeah, it was It was not an easy childhood. They your, were... Your mother started a kind of private nursing home in the house. My right? grandmother. grandmother. Your his, grandma, his excuse mother, me. Your, yeah. yeah, his mother. Yeah, and the kids had to help out taking care of old people in the home just to get by. Changing bedpans and washings yeah. and... Well, who was the storyteller? What I mean, what's my the grandmother? She was the story- oh, oh yes. phenomenal. She was amazing. Yeah. She re- she would recite long Wordsworth, uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow poems. I mean, a great sort of storytelling and poetry learning uh, tradition that's long gone. So that is the thread, it sounds like, for, yeah. to your father and responding yeah. to Shakespeare, it's, happening to have the complete. I, works. I think so. He certainly oh. had. 
I, I think from his mother he got this uh, sort of literary outlook. He would hide in the mm. attic to avoid work. <laughs> oh, many an artist has begun yes. that way, I think. <laughs> also, I, I do remember him talking about the imagination, that an actor does not need anything. He can take a, a shingle and turn it into a sword. Uh, he, he was a great believer in the empty stage, great writing and spoken words. You, and that, that's why we can listen to these archival recordings from 60 years ago, and it fires our imagination. We can see it. He sort of knew that. But he, uh, but he, lo- he so loved Shakespeare's phil- philosophical passages, the lunatic, the lover, and the poet, are of imagination all compact. He loved that passage because I, I think it sem- summed up the way he thought about theater. Brings to airy nothingness a, a local, local habitation, habitation and, and a, a name. name. And yeah. a name. Oh, That's our brother and sister act. <laughs> <laughs> we can do Danny well, Kate. <laughs> sorry, I'm so sorry, Tony. Sorry that we've left Tony out. But They'll Tony, be here all week, I have to tell ladies you, and gentlemen. But Tony was also a member of a four-sibling family. Well, yeah. yes, Harry, Tony. Betty, and, right. uh, and Tony, your and father's your father's journey to the stage is just really remarkable. Uh, we were looking and researching for this uh, for this podcast when we found the article from the front page of the New York Times when your father was arrested along with a group of other seminary students for evading the draft in 1940. So, so take us back, if if you would. H- how did he go from being this seminary student uh, to playing Malvolio in Twelfth Night? <laughs> That's a long trip. <laughs> That's um, Start at the beginning. He was a he was a pacifist, and he went off to Union Seminary, and while he was there, he joined up with Dave Dellinger, who became famous with a, what, Chicago 7? That's right. Um, but there were eight U- seminarians that uh, refused to register for the draft. My father had sort of cultivated a voice, a quality of voice from doing a lot of sermons, and he ended up being in prison for about um, three years altogether. Uh-huh. And by the end of it, he just had this deep sense of wanting to join humanity again, to not be part of some sort of uh, protest. And then this is where my father got paroled. And my father got involved in the theater here. And it was that involvement in the theater here that I think he had a deep sense of purpose. He spoke of theater as his ministry, that this was an extension of that spirit towards transformation. Theater is a way of speaking to the issues of the day. Oh, such a fascinating path. I also read that he, he performed opera at some point in prison. <laughs> they had a, um, while they were in prison in Danbury, Connecticut, they were, uh, were going to put on this um, FCI Utopia, Federal <laughs> Corrections Institute, Utopia, taken from Gilbert and Sullivan. And Utopia the limits. warden, everybody thought this would be a wonderful thing for the inmates to do until they finally saw it. So making they, fun of the, life in, in prison. Everybody who was involved in that thing ended up in solitary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I Which never was not heard the first this story. Extraordinary. Tony, yeah. I, I didn't Amazing. know this yeah. about Dal. I mean, we're so not curious when we're I mean, yeah. we're curious, totally curious, but yeah. not about adults yeah. when we're children. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And your father also did Twelfth Night for Joe Papp in Central Park later. He did, yeah. Uh, and that was in 58. Yeah. But, he, but what you say about your father and about... And he, I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that the Shakespeare Festival took place at Antioch. 
I mean, this exactly. was an extraordinary liberal arts college, innovative in all sorts of ways. Uh, our babysitter was Coretta Scott before she became yeah. Coretta Scott King, and she was a part of. And she was uh, my music teacher in yeah. in um, first grade. We were called Pinko Kami Brats. That was her yeah. name, Pinko Kami Brats. That persisted for a long time. Well, Tony, just to follow the the thread of your father and also this relationship between these two men, both mm-hmm. of your fathers, um, I get the impression from from things that you've said and written and from. Uh, videos I've seen of your father that he was kind of a calm guy, a pretty calm guy. He was, and Arth- very calm. Arthur, on the other hand, and you've spoken about this, he seemed a little bit, at least on stage or as a director, like a powder keg. So I, I don't think so. I, I, no. Oh, no. Am I, is, I, I, I got that all wrong. Oh, he, was very, he was very low-key. And, yeah. I mean, oh, so, uh, what, so there were, what was their relationship like, Tony? Uh, so was Between this, the two of them? Yeah, My father had tremendous admiration for Arthur. What happened in the end, though? Because I know that uh, Arthur Lithgow fired Dal, fired Meredith Dallas. I I know it was painful. I don't know the details. I don't know if you know. Yeah, I don't. I know um, it had something to do with the division of the um, the two. At one point, the festival got so big they split into two companies, and they had the Toledo company right. and the Yellow Springs company, and they would switch mid summer. And I don't know what happened, but I know that Dad took it to his grave. So I think it was very painful for him, and I think it was painful all around. It was certainly painful for me. Oh God! Yeah, our our lives became crazy after we after Dad right. left Antioch. I, and well, I he remember he just kept it on moving and moving yeah, and moving. Yeah, we, we, we like. became a sort of gypsy family for the next ten years. I remember asking him about it. Uh, in his old years. And he answered quite elliptically. He said, I just reached a point where where the festival was going to go one of two ways, expand as a professional operation, or it was going to contract. And he quit. The other thing is, mm. when my father was towards the end of his life, and he was sort of in failing memory and all that sort of stuff in a nursing home, I delivered him the message that Arthur had died. It's one of the few times I've seen him cry. Oh. Oh, God. I mean, I think my dad loved Dal very, very much, yeah. too. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been that much pain in the, yeah. Yeah. In the separation. And, I, I, you know, you think in terms of human relations, it's marriages that go bad. and it, These are terribly painful yeah. things. And also this connection to such an intense time. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. I mean, it's so intense. They it's were like brothers. But, you know, yeah. Yes. I think yeah, this is... and everybody, it sounded as if everybody was camping out. You know, the actors and the directors. I mean, it became one big family, I would imagine, after every season. Yeah, I remember Dal reading us bedtime stories. Yeah, sort of sonorous voice. It's wonderful to put your head on his yeah. chest to feel these words yeah. sort of <laughs> formulating in the basement. Well, I could keep you here all day. Um, but... <laughs> But maybe just um, stepping back from a moment uh, to to the big picture of this of of this Shakespeare Festival at Antioch, I really didn't realize until I started uh, prepping this this interview that 
this was something that had never been really done before in in America. I think I, I read somewhere in an introduction to some uh, signet edition of Two Noble Kinsmen that it says that your father's production uh, was only the second one in the world that was ever done between the 1600s and the 20th century. So wow. in 400 See, years, nobody had done this play. Maybe for a good reason, but <laughs> I thought it was then, great. Well, it. yeah, and then and then Timon of Athens. And Antioch's production was the first one ever done in the U.S. And it goes wow. on and on. Pericles, Titus, and Andronicus. That is, there fact, are just a lot of firsts here. I yeah. don't know for sure, but I believe that it's the only time all the plays have been done in five years. Right. So, I'm sure that's true. I mean, it was a period when there was the Ashland Shakespeare Festival, the Antioch Shakespeare Festival, Stratford, Connecticut, and Stratford, Ontario. All of them were part of this Shakespeare movement Explosion. in the 1950s. Yes, yeah. right. and Antioch kind of at the... Antioch, Antioch at was very much at four. the forefront of that. Yeah. Right, so what do you think the legacy is? Well, I think... Well, here we are. Yeah. We're talking about it. <laughs> John, All John these is years. certainly... Like, <laughs> like, well, I, I have to say, you know, when you were talking about theater with a purpose, my daughter is a director... Uh, she has a small company in Boulder, Colorado, and they, they're doing. They're right in the middle of a play right now. It's about the Syrian refugee crisis. Last year they did one on teenage uh, rape. The year before that they did one on biracial marriage in a political setting. Mm. She every play she chooses, it, she only does plays that have a reason, to, right. you know, a, a a cause, something. I didn't even think about it until they're all you brand said new. That. They're all brand new plays, but it's that feeling that theater needs to have a pulpit, uh, like Dal said. Theater takes this an idea his, his, and his, goes his... to the gut. Yeah, I, I mean, this has been an extraordinary couple of months for me doing this solo show. I've been doing it for years, but I finally did it on Broadway. And it's very much about him. It's almost a tribute to him and bringing back the Shakespeare days. And so many people have shown up mm. who were either students back in those days and saw the plays. A few of the actors themselves have shown up in their 80s. And it's, I don't know, for me it's been a kind of rumination on impermanence, the fact that mm. theater is incredibly exciting yeah. and urgent and important and essential when it's happening. And then it, but it's impossible to hold on to except in memory. And yet it has its legacy. People do experience Shakespeare and spend the rest of their lives as Shakespeare fans. And I think that's what they did. It has been so fun to talk to all three of you. I really appreciate it. I only wish Tony had been here. I know. Tony, thank you for telling that story about you. I wish I could join you for lunch. Yeah. Well, we'll send send some shrimp with with the runner. (laughs) I wish you all the best. And thank you again. Thank you. Thank you, Barbara. Tony Dallas is the son of Meredith Dallas. Robin Lithgow and John Lithgow are the children of Arthur Lithgow. Lithgow and Dallas were the founders of the Shakespeare Under the Stars Festival at Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio. Between 1953 and 1957, the festival produced the entire Shakespeare canon. Tony, Robin, and John were interviewed by Barbara Bogave. I Live to Speak My Father's Words was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor and Esther Farrington. Esther French is the web producer. We had lots of help in the production of this episode. 
The recordings of Coriolanus, Julius Caesar, and Timon of Athens were provided by the Antioch College archivist Scott Sanders. The recording of The Merry Wives of Windsor came from Kelton Garwood's son, Doug Garwood. Robin Lithgow gave us the recording of The Taming of the Shrew. We had technical help from Juliet Fromholt and Peter Hayes at WYSO Public Radio in Yellow Springs, Ohio, and Lauren Cassio, Nick Bazone, and Mike Lerma at the Formosa Group's recording studio in Santa Monica, California. We'd also like to extend special thanks to Nina Ellis, the general manager at WYSO, who first told us about Shakespeare Under the Stars and suggested that we highlight it. We hope you're enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited. And if you are, we hope you'll do us a favor. Please consider reviewing the podcasts on whatever platform you get the podcast from. When you do that, it helps us get the word out to people who haven't heard it yet. We'd really appreciate your help in increasing people's access to these remarkable interviews. Thank you. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.